2009. Oh. Yeah. It's a year that my wife, her name is Amy, by the way, if you didn't know that, that we bought our first home together. We had just had our first kid, Ella, that year. And so we kind of decided it was time for us to move into something bigger than the little apartment that we had been in there for those uh, first three years in Stillwater. And so we bought this uh, little home on the east end of town, like the southeast end of town. And it was not a really nice neighborhood and it was not a really nice home. Uh, but it was, it was our home, and it was this first one that we had, and so we were so glad to be in it. And, and we did a lot of things to try and fix it up and make it look nice. My parents and her parents spent a lot of time in there painting and helping us uh, redo flooring and stuff like that and, and all this stuff to try and make it a nice place to live in. We tried our best to like take care of it. And a year later, uh, we had our second kid, Hudson, and then uh, two and a half years after that, we had Hadley. So all of our kids, all three of our kids in their like baby years were spent in this home. And like I said, we, we really did, during our time there, we tried to continually make little improvements into it. And we tried to uh, fix it up. We tried to really take care of this house and keep it clean while we were in it. But uh, we also had to try to take care of these three kids while we were there. And it turns out that it is really hard to do both of those things. Uh, to take care of small children and a house. Not only because kids require a lot of attention, and so it's, it's hard to have the time for the house, uh, but also because kids are, little kids are like constantly undermining everything you're trying to do to keep the house clean and in order, right? Like they're just always coming behind you and doing these things. You may have heard this statement my wife likes to use a lot, that trying to keep a house clean with small kids is like trying to shovel snow in a blizzard. Right? It's like every bit you're doing, it doesn't matter. They're just coming right behind you and just knocking crap over and all of this stuff every time you're trying to do these things. But, but she worked really hard. She was a stay-at-home mom at the time. That was really big for us to, to have a presence in the home with our kids, uh, especially while they were young. And so she stayed there and took care of them and took care of the house. And, and she tried to get into this kind of like routine of cleaning to make sure that everything was together, where she would do a little every day. And then on one day, she would do like the big stuff and really get it knocked out, not just swept, but, you know, mopped in the kitchen and the uh, dining room and all those things to make it really nice. And, and so I, I don't remember what day of the week that was, but we had just had that day where she did all the cleaning and she had mopped and, and really tried to make it really nice in there. And, and the next morning we get up and I head off to work. And then she gets up and she gets the kids around and gets them kind of together. At this point, we only have Ella, who's two, and Hudson, who's about six months old. And she gets them ready and kind of gets them breakfast, gets them around, and then she decides, okay, now they're kind of set. I can go back and get myself ready. And she goes back into the bedroom, and she's, like, putting on her makeup. And as she's putting on her makeup, it kind of dawns on her, like, it's been really quiet in this house. And it's been, like, really peaceful, you know? Uh, like, no one's been around my, like, ankles in the last two minutes asking for something. I don't hear any fighting coming from the other side of the house. Nobody's crying, right? And, and that means almost inevitably, if you're a parent, you know, that means almost inevitably, some, like, the kids are doing something they should not be doing, right? If they're not asking you for something, it's because they don't want to be found doing something, right? <laughs> and so they're doing something. And this is a thing. You can ask parents. You will discover this one day. There's always this moment when you realize it's been really quiet in the house and you know your kids are in trouble and you have this like debate in your mind where like, how badly do I really want to know what this is? <laughs> like, it's so nice to have this peace and quiet. I mean, 
yeah, they might be starting a fire somewhere, but like I could take three, I could call 911 in three minutes and have just three more minutes of quiet, you know? And so she had that moment where she's trying to figure this out and she finally decides, you know, I probably need to go check this thing. And sure enough, my wife had cleaned the house really well, but she had, she had made one fatal flaw the night before. And that is that she had left this basket, this little tub basket thing on the kitchen counter. And that little basket uh, happened to have, I think we just had a birthday or something, I don't know, but happened to have all the decorate, like all the cake decorating supplies in it. All the sprinkles and the food coloring and all of those things. And it was just in reach where like if, my, if our kids pushed a chair up to the kitchen counter, which they did, uh, that they could get up there and grab that, right? And so they had pulled that down and they decided they wanted some sprinkles. But kids are like, you know, it's like if you want some sprinkles, may I just throw some back? But that's not how kids think, right? They don't, they're not like take a little bit or put some in their hands. They're like, best way to do this. Let's see. Pour it all on the floor and then scoop it up right and so so she walks around the the corner to the kitchen to find Ella and Hudson just on the ground just covered in sprinkles and food dye all over the floor and all of these things it was just this disaster of of a kitchen in that moment that she had just cleaned and and the thing is like she she would pick that all up and clean it but there's like no we were finding sprinkles in our kitchen for months after that, right? They're just all over in every little crevice and those things. There was this, this moment, I think, really like um, encapsulates in a lot of ways what, what the writer, what Koheleth, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is, is going to try to convey to us tonight. This moment where my wife worked so hard to get the house looking really nice and, and worked hours to do that. And then in a matter of minutes, all of it is undone. Her, her precious work and the time she put in it, just all back to square one. That's, that's a lot of, of what Koheleth, what the teacher, what Ecclesiastes is going to talk to us about tonight. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you want to turn there. We are talking specifically about work tonight. Uh, about uh, labor and about the effort that we put into life, into our jobs or into our homes or to make things right. Um, This is a big one because this is why for many of you, you are here in Stillwater at OSU or NOC or Meridian. Like you are in this place because you are planning to get a to get a degree so that you can go into your career, so that you can go from here. This place is setting kind of the trajectory for the place where you want to go, the direction you want to go, the career or the work that you want to have. This is what Koheleth has to say about it. We're going to be in 18, starting 18 through 26, but first step back one verse because there's kind of this transition verse between wisdom, which is what he was talking about earlier, and this and work. He says in verse 17, Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. So we get a pretty good idea right out of the gate what he thinks, what the teacher thinks about work. He puts it actually in the same category as he has put pleasure, which we talked about last week, and as he has put wisdom and knowledge, which we put in, he puts them in the same category of futile. And if you haven't been here yet, if this is your first night with us, um, that word in Hebrew that he's using for futile is literally like smoke or vapor. 
And what he, he uses this word over and over again to describe the things in life that we try to grab a hold of, but then they slip right through our fingers. These things that we, we try to grab and wrestle them to the ground so that we can find meaning or significance or purpose from them. But every time we grab at them, it's like we're grabbing at air. We're grabbing at vapor. And he says, this is what work is like for those who chase after trying to pull their significance out of it. It's vapor. And why is that? Well, he'll list three reasons here in the next six verses. Uh, Starting in verse 18. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This, too, is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. So the first reason that work is vapor, is futile in Koheleth, in his mind, is because we can never be sure that our work will last. A person can give themselves to a project or a task. They can work hard with wisdom and skill. They can pour their life into an organization and build something great and incredible, but they have no security, no sense of assurance that that thing that they built will last. Often, Uh, It could just be one stock market crash away, one recession, one natural disaster from watching their life's work fall apart there in front of them. And even if things do work out, what he's going after specifically is even if things do work out, even if during my kind of uh, reign over my work and stuff, even if that works out, at some point I'm going to have to pass that off to someone else everything else that I work for. And I don't know who it is that's going to receive it. And I don't know how well they're going to do with it. I have no control over my work, my life's work, my projects. I have no control over those things from the point I hand them off. Uh, Jack Welch was considered probably the greatest CEO in the 20th century. Certainly at his time, he was considered the greatest, and and maybe for all the 20th century, the greatest. He was the uh, CEO of General Electric, GE, from 1981 to 2001. And during that time, uh, he basically took that company and made it the most relevant, the most uh, successful, most respected, most valuable Uh, objectively valuable company in the world. In the year 2000, as he was wrapping up his term as the, as the like CEO over all of it, it was worth $200 billion. They say GE kind of in its time was like the Apple, Google, and Microsoft all together, all at one. Like that's how big of a player it was in the world. And so uh, he had brought it to this incredible place. And then in 2001, he handed it over to his successor, Jeff Immolt. And then over the next 20 years of Jack Welch's life, which he died in 2020, over those next 19, 20 years, he watched as the company that he poured his life into crumbled in the hands of a molt. It just fell apart, just little by little. And, and some of that was maybe not in Moltz's life. He actually received the reins of the company just days before 9-11. And then the recession came in 2008, but many will say that a lot of it was his fault. 
And, and Jack Welch personally selected him. He had these three guys that he was working and trying to figure out who was going to be the next guy. And people even warned him against it, but he liked, he liked Jeff and Milton. So he handed it over, and he would spend the rest of his life expressing his regret and his shame over those things. General Electric actually today, uh, this year, is, is being dismantled and split into three different companies because it is dropped to such a worthless level in these days. And everything that Jack Welch put his life into and everything he did fell apart before his eyes as he handed it off to someone else. This is a common story. Uh, a young woman uh, creates a startup tech company and builds it from the ground up and makes it amazing and then hands it off to her successor and it falls apart. A king gives his life to building up an incredible lasting empire, one that should be forever, one that should be unstoppable, and over the course of several generations, it just dissolves into nothingness. Uh, a missionary goes and she works in some uh, remote jungle in Africa or in South America and devotes herself to creating uh, a little uh, compound with, with like an orphanage and a clinic, and she gives her entire life to that thing, and then a civil war comes. And, and the country gets divided, and in the midst of all the chaos, everything, her entire life's work, gets destroyed as she gets run out of the country and the buildings get taken down. This is a very common story. We can pour our lives into projects, into things that we care about, hoping to make a difference, hoping that they will last, and yet we have no ability to control that or guarantee that. But there's another reason why this can be a futile enterprise, the idea of work, and that's in verse 21. He says this, When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. The second reason why work can be futile is that we can never be sure that, we'll, uh, that what we earn will last that what we gain from our work will last. Maybe you're not concerned really about the long-term impact of your work. Maybe as I'm talking about this stuff and building up a company and, and doing something great, maybe in your mind you're going, I don't even care. Like, all work is to me is a paycheck. All work will be to me is, is a chance to make it in life, to kind of build the, the wealth that I need to get on and, and, and move from there. That's, that's, so I, I don't care whether my work lasts or anything. That's fine. But you need to know that actually, uh, and we'll get into next week actually, we're going to explore that idea of, of gaining wealth and money and how that works in life. But you need to know is actually that um, the point of what, what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes is much of what we often work for, maybe not all of it, much of it ends up in other people's hands oftentimes. Whether that be an exploitative boss who gets rich off the hard work and ingenuity of his employees, uh, that might be in a sweatshop in Bangladesh, that might be in a tech company in the Silicon Valley, but a boss who is lazy and manipulative and can use other people to further his own interests and his own wealth, maybe whether that be a businessman who rips off their clients or their partners through shady dealings, or this story a lot, you see people who will give their lives to building up a nest egg for their family, and they will work hard, blood, sweat, and tears to bring some level of financial stability and security that should last their family for generations, and then they just watch as their kids squander it all in the few years after they receive it. This kind of thing can happen a lot. There is no way to guarantee 
that what I end up with after 40 years of work, that what I end up with will even be worth all the effort that I put into it. Uh, I, I don't have control over that. Even, even if it looks like it's going to be, at some point there's always the chance that this gets taken or I lose it or those things. And at the end, when I weigh the scales out, I go, I don't know if this was worth it. I, I can't make that happen for myself. He continues in verse 22 and 23. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. So first reason why work uh, can be futile. You can't guarantee that your work will last. Second one, you cannot guarantee that what you earn will last. Third reason is a little less delicate. Work sucks. Okay? <laughs> That's not my words, that's, that's Koheleth's words, okay? Uh, and, and listen, the picture, is, the picture is a little broader than this. He's, he's kind of getting narrow, and, and he's going to stab back, and he's not going to say, this isn't the whole picture. But he is describing this idea. Um, most of you, when you leave here, you're going to go on into your adult life, and outside of, like, sleep itself, you will probably, give, you will probably uh, spend more time working than doing any other single thing in your life. You'll spend much of your waking hours towards those things. And the point of what he's making here is that you may go through all of these things. Many people, lives will be just dominated by their work as they seek to climb the ladder, as they seek to make their way to the top or make a name for themselves in this world or just to make a, the world a better place. And some people will, will give themselves to 50, 60, 70 hours a week to see things come to fruition. And, and just because they do go home at the end of the workday, whether it's after a 10-hour workday or an 8-hour workday at a 12-hour, just because they do go home, that doesn't mean that their mind goes home. What does the teacher say here in verse 23? Even at night, his mind does not rest. He keeps thinking on these things. You've probably already experienced this to some degree. Uh, working on a school project that is just overwhelming you, and you've put weeks and weeks into this thing. And even when you step away and you try to take a study break, you're like, I just got to get a good night's sleep. You lay your head on the pillow, and the mind is still spinning on it. And you can't stop thinking about it. That's, that's a taste of what you may experience at some point, what some people experience when it comes to work. And, and the question that the teacher is asking here is all this, is all this blood, sweat, and tears, all the late hours at the office, all the stress we take home, all the ways that work can dominate us, is all this worth it? This is a question that has messed with people for a long time. Uh, this is, this is where a lot of midlife crises come from. This idea, a, a guy gets to be 40, 50, and he goes, man, I, I have just spent like, I just spent like much of my life just getting in my car, driving to work, um, working there, and then coming home. What, to make money so I can buy a new car to drive me back to work? And, and, and they start to just kind of reflect on these things. And is what I've been giving my life to worth it? This can cause some crazy struggles in people. But there is a small bright spot that we come to in these next couple of verses. Koheleth goes, that's not the whole picture. And, and we'll get to see a little bit of it here in these few verses. Verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. 
I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. So this sounds at first like a contradiction. There's nothing better than to eat, drink, and enjoy one's work. And it's like, wait a second. I thought you just said you can't enjoy work. I thought you just said work is the worst. And now you're saying there's nothing better than to enjoy it. But you need to actually understand and grasp what the teacher has been trying to communicate in the verses leading up to 24. He's not dogging work specifically. What he's actually going after is the way we use work as a means to get something else. As a means to get what we really want in life. Wealth and identity lasting fame or a lasting name, security. This is where frustration comes in because rarely will the reward be worth the effort. And if you use work as a means to get these things, you can, you can tell yourself that that's what you're going to use to leverage the life you want out of it. But he's saying you have no guarantee that that will be the case. And even if you do, even if you are able to make a name for yourself, even if you are able to make money, even if you are able to be successful, that identity, that success sits on shaky ground and temporary ground that only lasts as long as your skill level lasts. As long, only lasts as long as there's no, not somebody better than you. It only lasts as long as your work is in good hands, which you cannot control says that is the kind of view that will lead to frustration when we're using work for something else. So what he's calling for is actually a paradigm shift, to be able to step to the side and see work in a different way. And, and that is a perspective that sees that work in and of itself, for its own sake, can actually be a joy, can actually be a gift from God, which is so the opposite of how so many people see it. Many people, work is sort of a necessary evil. It's, uh, it's the thing I do to get what I want. And, and what Koheleth saying is that's, that's going to lead you in some troubling places. What you need, actually, is to be able to take a view of work that sees it as a gift from God and to be able to take joy in it, in and of itself. So the question is, how? How do I shift my mind from this to this, how can I see work accurately for what it is actually supposed to be? That's what we'll talk about in the second half. First, we'll take just a few minutes uh, to take a break, uh, go to the restroom, stretch your legs, whatever you need to do, and we'll come back. Question, uh, what, when you were a kid, what was your understanding of work? And specifically what I mean is, what was your understanding of your parents' work? And, and even to get a little bit more specific, like when, when work was talked about in your house, how was it talked about? Or, or what was the message you received about work, either through their words or through the fact that they were gone all the time or for the, the kind of mood they came home in or the mood they went to work in? Like in, in a sentence, what I want you to do actually is I want you just with the person next to you, in a sentence, if you were to say, in my home, work was, how would you finish that sentence as you kind of reflect on what it was like in your own family, in your own home uh, growing up? Take a minute, turn, and, and, and talk about that for just 30 seconds there.
All right, bring it in. I don't know what, uh, what your answer is to that, what your view was, uh, what you saw in your own parents, uh, but there are a lot of different kind of, uh, a large spectrum, let's say, of kind of uh, pictures of this. Work is, is a very strange animal in some ways, of, of the four different things that we're talking about over these, these course of weeks, work is the most every day of all of them, right? Uh, it, is the, it is the nine to five. It is the, this is kind of what my life is pointing towards here from college. Work is a really big deal. It's considered a basic necessity of life, mostly for the income. I, I need income, but even there's something about just working that people need to do and that they struggle when they can't. One of the greatest things people want is employment. And, and we gauge a nation oftentimes on, on things like employment numbers. How many people are working? It's a really important part, not just personally, but of a society as a whole. And most people actually, I was kind of surprised to find this in, a, in recent Gallup polls, like most people are, are relatively satisfied with their jobs. Most people in America who work either part-time or full-time are relatively satisfied, and yet there does seem to always, always be this little undercurrent of frustration with work, even in good jobs, even in things that we like, even in just the work that we do around the home, uh, a level of frustration. You can hear it in the way we talk about, just think about the way we talk about Mondays and Fridays. Uh, right? We use like corny, goofy things like, oh, somebody's got a case of the Mondays, right? Like these, these kind of goofy things. And, and what we mean by that is this is the day when people are bummed out because they've got to go back and start this whole thing all over again. And then there's this different kind of energy and, and excitement around Fridays because I finally get to, to go home. This is even people who love their work, but I get to go and do what I want to do now. And, and it's fascinating to me, actually, one of the greatest goals of work is to not have to work anymore. Like one of the reasons people work really hard and really aim themselves at something in work is for the sake of retirement. Uh, and even like this is kind of the, the magical goal that people want, early retirement. To be able to be done with work early and then to be able to kind of do whatever I want, which is fascinating. I don't even know if retirement is biblical, actually, this idea that I just get to a point where I stop working and I just do whatever I want. But it's something that is super, very well loved. Uh, a lot of people, even in Christian circles, I think I kind of grew up with this idea sometimes that like work was a result of the fall. That like it, originally the way God designed it in, in the Garden of Eden, we're just kind of, people were just Adam and Eve hanging out at, and leisure and just kind of doing whatever. And then because of sin, because of uh, that entering into the world, everything got broken, they got kicked out of the garden, and now they have to work to take care of themselves, to provide for themselves. That's not actually how the Bible describes it. The Bible actually has some different things to tell us. Here is what the Bible says about work. Uh, three things I want to hit on tonight specifically. First is this. 
that work is good. That work is a good thing. We read in Ecclesiastes 2 that there is few things better than for a person to be able to enjoy, to be able to eat, drink, and enjoy their work, which sounds odd, but, but that is a, a good thing in the scriptures. And, and we see actually in the Bible that we were made to work, that this is part of what it is to be image bearers. This is Genesis 1.26, says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. The idea is, you may have heard this phrase, that man is to have, man and women are to have dominion over the earth. Um, but the goal isn't just like we get to take it and do whatever we want with it. The idea is that we're meant to like work and cultivate it, to, to take something and make something good and beautiful out of it. Look at 2.15, Genesis 2.15, he says this, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And this is before sin has entered. From the beginning, God actually put human beings on the earth to work and to, to create, to cultivate, to bring order. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it'll go on to say that the earth was uh, empty and void. The, the Hebrew, there's this idea of like a chaotic nothingness, a chaotic emptiness. And what we see is out of the chaos, God makes order and he creates organization and order and beauty out of the chaos. And then he makes people in his image and we're supposed to do the same things. That we take the raw materials of this earth, the potential around us, and we use it to do good things. That's what we're designed to do. And in that sense, what your dad always told you is true. Work is good for you. Builds character, is how he would say it probably. Uh, and that's because work is actually, work is making you more yourself. It's making you more what you were designed to be. And so that is a good thing. I think it's even interesting that in the beginning, the, the ratio that we were given is uh, that there would be a day of Sabbath rest, uh, that the end of the week would have Sabbath rest, but that comes after six Six days of work. The ratio of work to rest is six to one at the beginning in God's design. I think that's, that, that tells us something about what God thinks of work and our ability to do those things. Uh, it, it is something that, that we were made for. It is something that I believe we will actually do in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. But sin does eventually come into play. It does come and it wreaks havoc on the whole world. The fallenness of humanity breaks everything, including work. It has some strong effects, and that's the second thing we see uh, about work in the scriptures, that work is broken. That the kind of work we live is not exactly what it was meant to be. This is what we see after Adam and Eve fall into sin. God comes to them, and he says this in verse uh, chapter 3, Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust 
And so what we see here is actually, even though man was put on the earth to uh, cultivate and to work and to do these things, but sin causes a curse to come where that work does not come easy. It comes with great difficulty and frustration. Adam's not going to be able to just plant stuff and it just pops up. He's going to plant stuff and now he's going to have to till the soil. And now he's going to have to fight weeds. And now he's going to have to combat drought. And he's going to have to do all these things to bring it. And, and what we find is that work, even the work that we love, is often very, very frustrating. And that is something that is difficult. I, I think this can be uh, really true for those who are creating. If you are creating, uh, whether, it is, whether it is a business that you're trying to build up, whether it is building something, whether it is uh, art, whether it is design, whether it is writing poetry, whatever it is, there's this thing, and it's hard to even put your finger on it, but if you've, if you've experienced it, you know it. This thing where the end result of what you created, what you make, you really like, and yet it's never quite what you envisioned when you were making it. Um, one of the things I, I kind of like to do, I haven't done much of it recently, but I actually kind of like to like build furniture uh, to make little pieces like in our house and stuff. And, and uh, I'll, I'll work on things and I'll work on these projects. And it's always fun when it's finished and get to, to you know, put it somewhere in our house and people can come and see it and comment on it. Uh, but one of the things like I always know whenever that piece of furniture is done, whether they see it or not, I know where the flaws are. Like, I see it, and I, and I have to, like, make this deal with myself a lot of times when, when I make something like, you cannot stare at that one, like, crooked leg over and over again on this thing. You cannot stare at that one place where it's slightly uneven. You're just going to drive yourself crazy. There's this sense in which uh, my effort never quite gives me exactly what I was hoping to, or at least it often doesn't. There's frustration in these things. Another thing that work does is it creates in us uh, not just frustration over things, but it creates uh, this, basically a rat race. It creates this mentality of competition. This is what the teacher tells us. Koheleth says himself in Ecclesiastes 4.4, I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in the pursuit of the wind. He says that basically what often happens in work, the, the reason many people work is simply to keep up with the Joneses, is simply to climb the ladder, is to get ahead. And what work, this good gift that God created to be able to live out his image, what it often becomes in us, is a way to, to try to compete and outdo other people and to turn people into obstacles that I have to push to the side or overcome or to turn people into competitors uh, rather than friends and companions. Uh, this race to the top work also because of sin and its brokenness. Work often becomes our identity. Um, the world will tell you this a lot, that your work is your identity. This is my love-hate relationship with this question that you have all been asked a billion times, including by me, and I apologize, and that is, so what's your major? <laughs> right? You've been asked that so many times, and, and you're so tired of answering. And, and again, I, I mean, I, I like to ask it, um, but... The problem with it is when I ask the question, what's your major, what I mean is like, what are you interested in? What brought you here? And what students often hear is, who are you? 
And, and there's this little bit of nervousness when you don't have an answer, when you haven't settled on it yet, or when you kind of fear that like the major that you've chosen doesn't sound all that impressive. And, and this thing that carries around a, a lot of people feel at, at college that they're not picking a major, they're not picking a career, they're picking an identity. They're picking who they are. This is why Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is a book all about work and, and kind of a gospel view of work, he says this is why there are a lot of people who go into fields that are not suited for them because, uh, and fields that they hate because they, they're not picking based on what I want to do and what I'm good at and what I enjoy. They're picking based on uh, an identity that I want to have. Uh, since the Greeks, he says, we've kind of, since the time of the Greeks, we've div divided workforce into two different categories, uh, thinking workforce and doing workforce, like uh, mind work and hands work, manual labor. And there's been kind of this consistent idea that kind of puts mind work over and above manual labor. And so a lot of people who really should be uh, working with their hands because they're brilliant with their hands and because they love that kind of stuff end up doing this because this is what the world tells you you should do and because you want to be impressive and because you want to be able to say well I'm whatever I'm I'm a doctor I'm a lawyer I'm these kinds of things and 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 people try to find their identities and wrap that uh, wrap the whole thing up in that um, but this does not need to be the case for us even though work is broken even though it's not everything it should be, I also believe this, that work can be redeemed. And it is redeemed by a gospel-centered life. We, we, we shared with you just a minute ago, one of our four things uh, at the table. And no, they are not the four legs of the table. That would be dumb. They are just the four things of the table, okay? Uh, one of our four things is commitment to community. This is another one, and this is actually the foundational one. This is one of the things that we want to be about and we want you to be about more than anything else, which is a gospel-centered life. And our definition of a gospel-centered life is letting Jesus' work and identity shape every area of your life. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do ought to affect every part of me ought to spill over into every aspect of my life. That's what we want for you. Every aspect, including work. When we center ourselves on the gospel, it changes things because the gospel tells us this. The gospel tells us that there is a God who created the earth and that his son is the rightful king who is restoring all things. There's a God who created the earth and his son is the rightful king who through his death and resurrection is restoring all things, and that is huge for us. When we can grasp those things, that gives work. These three things, which I want to talk about, it gives work purpose, it gives work dignity, and it gives work, uh, it gives work hope. Gives them these three things, and, 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 and I think that this is important for us to be able to grasp. First of all, it gives us purpose, because we know that God created the earth. And he put us here to be a part of that. A couple weeks ago, I talked about this idea, what theologians call common grace. So there is uh, what's called special grace. And that refers specifically to the grace we read about in the scriptures, the grace by which God saved us. That through his son Jesus dying for our sins, that we are now, we have a, a path to God through Jesus by none of our own doing. It is a free gift. It is a free grace from God. That's special grace. Common grace is the gifts that God gives to all the world constantly. 
uh, things like sunshine, things like rain and wisdom, but also common grace is the way he blesses us through humanity, through other people. So even like this idea, you go uh, to a restaurant and you go and order yourself a burger and your thought, when you don't actually like think through this very much, what you think is that restaurant fed me. I went there, that restaurant provided food and that's true, but that is not at all the whole story. Actually, no, you were fed by farmers who raised the produce that ended up on that burger and the wheat that ended up in the bun. You were raised by ranchers, or you were fed by ranchers who raised the beef for that. You were fed by bakers who baked the buns. You were fed by truckers who delivered that across. You were fed by cooks. You were fed by uh, logistics experts who worked out how all of that stuff can come together. God used a hundred people to feed you. We see that, like, this is what common grace is. When you're hungry, God does not just magically put a sandwich in your hands. God feeds you through common grace. He feeds you through the work of other people. There is purpose to work because we have a role. If God created this world and brought order to it, and then he made us in his image, that means that everything you do, teaching second graders, being an engineer, being a banker, being a plumber, everything you do has a role to play in God's work of bringing order to the world, bringing beauty to the world, making this world a little bit more of what it should be. There was this guy when I was at Ozark Christian College where I went to school, um, there was a guy there named Bob, and Bob was one of the janitors uh, there on the, on the campus ground, specifically like in the dorms. I was, I was in Williamson Hall, and, and Bob was awesome. He was, first of all, he looked like Santa Claus, okay, only like 50 pounds lighter than Santa Claus, but he had the big white beard, and he was just like friendly and jovial. He was like the nicest dude, and Bob's job was to come through, Bob's job, uh, Bob's job was to come through and clean the dorms, and, and specifically the bathrooms. There were communal bathrooms up there, and so, which is like, man, cleaning up like bathroom dorms for college guys has got to be like the worst job in the world, right? But you would never know it by the way Bob came to work every day with like a smile on his face and kindness in his heart and legitimate joy, loved doing what he was doing. And, and he was one of our favorite people there. There was actually, it was like a rotation. And so the janitors would go to different places at times. So Bob would leave for a while. And like on the day that Bob's rotation brought him back to our dorm, that was like big news in the dorm, right? People would like go through the dorms, Bob's back, everybody, Bob's back. And we would go out and greet him. We'd be so excited to like talk with him. And, and I was so just blown away by this guy and the way, he, uh, the way he went about his work with joy. And one time I, I, I asked him, I, I thanked him just for everything that he did for us. And then I just asked, how? How do you do this with so much like happiness and joy in your life? And I remember him saying, basically he said, you know, the way I see it is you young men are here to, to train and prepare yourselves for ministry. And it's your job to study and learn so you can go out and do ministry. And my job is to be here and keep this place clean so that you guys don't get sick, so you can keep studying, so you can continue to prepare. My job is to make this place a good, healthy, clean environment that you don't have to devote yourself to doing all these things. You can devote yourself to preparing for ministry. And I remember that just like being such a cool paradigm shift for me that Bob considers, I consider Bob to be a part of what's happening here tonight. 
because he made a way for me to be able to work and study in a clean and healthy environment so that I could be a part of getting to invest in you guys. I love that. And so that also leads us to the second thing, that when we know the gospel, uh, that there is a God who made the earth and his son is the king restoring all things, that gives work dignity. It gives work real, legitimate dignity. Let me show you a verse from Colossians 3. I forgot to mark it, so i got to get there. Colossians 3, verses 23, 24, you've probably heard this, says this. He's talking specifically to servants, to employees. He says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, that is for the king and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you're doing, whoever you're working for, truthfully, who you're really working for, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, you are working for the king. And that makes a big difference. Imagine yourself uh, going over and trying to go and, and make a life for yourself in England, and you end up kind of failing miserably, and you're just flipping burgers at McDonald's, and that ends up being your life. Uh, that might not be much to, to write home about. You might not tell a lot of people about your big job. But if one day you found out that the royal family was coming to eat at that McDonald's, uh, specifically like a couple years ago when the queen was still alive. And the queen came, like, that's something you would tell people about. Like, you would tell stories about that to your grandkids the day that you served a burger to the queen, right? Because the person you're doing, for, doing it for makes all the difference in what you're doing. And you are working for, if you are a follower of Jesus, when you do work, you get to work on behalf of the king the king of the universe, and that matters in the way we see things. But there's this third thing that the gospel gives us, and that is hope. Because we know that Jesus is restoring all things, that he is making all things new, which means my efforts, however feeble they may be and however temporary they may seem at times, they're not wasted. Uh, Because as I work for order and beauty, I do that because I know and believe that order and beauty exists, that there is such a thing. Uh, that this isn't just all chaos, that this isn't all chance, that there is something bigger than this. And one day, one day, everything we see in front of us will be order and beauty. Everything that we have worked towards will come to fruition in Jesus. He makes everything new. And in that sense, when you do your job well, and when you work with the love of Christ in your heart, and you shine the light of Jesus, as you do work well, working for the King, you open up these little windows into eternity. And people get to see this little glimpse of something bigger beyond this world when they see you do your job well and with joy and with the love and kindness of Jesus and speaking to him. It's a beautiful thing. Work like this can give us purpose and dignity and hope. But, and this is really important, when we center our our lives and our work on the gospel, it gives us all of these things without giving us ultimate meaning, which it shouldn't give us ultimate meaning. And and when we're able to base our lives in the gospel, it changes everything. This, who knows what this is? Who can tell me what this is? This is a roof shingle or a piece of it. Uh, I literally just a few minutes ago got up on the roof here at Sunnybrook and took this off. So if anybody's experiencing any leaking on them or anything like that, that's my bad. Okay. This is a shingle. Shingles are really, really valuable parts of buildings and homes. A really important part, and, and what they do is they keep the weather out, and they end up protecting. Because of that, they protect much of 
everything else that is in the home. Shingles are a valuable, important part of the house and of any building that you sit in. But can I tell you, shingles make a really bad foundation. And if I were to try to take this shingle, who has, which has an incredible job to protect my stuff and to keep my, my house dry and warm and all those things, if I were to try to take this shingle and I were to try to build my house on top of it, then eventually the foundation is going to shift and things are going to crumble. And that is what happens when we take things like work and we try to build an identity out of them. When we take things like work and we try to use it to get ahead of everybody else. When we take things like work and we use it to just make ourselves rich, to make a name for ourselves. No, 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 work wasn't designed to do that. This is what Derek Kidner says. He says, actually, things like work and food and drink and pleasure and wisdom, all these things we've been learning about, are not bad. But he says this, what spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. Work can never give you ultimate satisfaction. Only Jesus can do that. Work can never give you the identity that you want. Only Jesus can do that. And when you try to squeeze more out of it than it can possibly give, it will change you. It will work in bad ways. When we work for self, for self-actualization or self-advancement or self-gain, everything else starts to crumble. Your career may go great, but there's a good chance your family will fall apart. Your career may go great, but you may not have very many friends when you make your life all about your job, when you make that your identity. The gospel tells you this. Your work is not who you are. Good or bad, whatever you do, your work is not who you are because God has already done a work to make you something else. Ephesians 2.10 says it like this, that we are therefore God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I work because God worked in me. I work for the good of my brothers and sisters. I work for the good of the world because God worked in me. Because God did a new work to make me who I am. And that identity has nothing to do with my work. And that identity has nothing to do with what I accomplish. That identity is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. Because he has made me his own workmanship. Created to do good works. The gospel sets us free to serve the world. And to serve God with purpose, dignity, and hope. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the goodness of work, and I pray this prayer of protection over my friends in this room that you would guard them from being consumed by it, but also that you would guard them from laziness, that you would help them to see the beauty of it, and you would put in them a heart that wants to work hard for, for you and your kingdom and for the people around them, but that their identity would always be rooted firmly in Jesus. And that they would let their work flow from that gospel identity. Uh, open our eyes to the goodness of that. Open our eyes to Jesus tonight as we sing about him. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.